GameStop, one of the largest physical distributors of video games in the United States, has been in the news the last week because of the run-up in its stock. This week, we'll talk about how video games are distributed, how they've historically been distributed, and why GameStop might be on the wrong end of the trends in the video game industry. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible. Before we dive into this week's topic, we want to remind everyone to subscribe on their podcast player of choice. Absolutely. So what are we talking about this week, Rebecca? This week, we're going to dive into something from current events. But before we talk about what's happening now, first, we're going to talk about video game distribution. And when we say video game distribution, what we mean is how video games get into the hands of the consumer. Right. So how does a game go from being made by its developers to get to you so that you can play it? And there's really two different categories of games that we should be talking about. There are PC games, so games for your Windows computer or your Mac computer, or maybe your Linux computer, and games for video game consoles. And both of those go all the way back to the 1970s, but they've always had really two different tracks of distribution. So how were they distributed? So video game console games have always been a lot more locked down. If we go back to the very early era of video games, first we had arcade games. That's when you would go to an arcade and you'd put some quarters into a machine and the games that you could play would be what the arcade owner decided he wanted to have available in his arcade. So that was really limited, right? You weren't making any really decisions about what you wanted to buy the arcade owner was making decisions about what you could play. And he could upgrade them sometimes, but remember, this was physical hardware, so there were ways to take out the board and repaint it to change what would go into some of these arcade machines, but it was hard, and so they were pretty static. Then we had the first home consoles. The first really famous home console was Atari's Pong, and all it could do was play Pong. So there was nothing to decide there. If you wanted to play Pong, you got Pong. But after that, the first really popular video game system, although it wasn't the first, was the Atari 2600. And the Atari 2600 allowed you to put different cartridges into the machine. So for the first time, you could have a machine, and there were other ones out there. There was the Intellivision and ColecoVision and things like that. But this was the first really mass-produced, 30 million of them were made, video game console. And third parties could also make these cartridges. Atari would license the right for other companies to make cartridges for the Atari 2600. And so you then could go to a physical store and you could pick from a selection of many different games that you could bring home and put into your console. Now, the thing is that these console manufacturers were trying to control two things. One, they wanted to stop piracy. So they didn't want people going and taking their games and just copying them. Number two, they wanted to keep quality up to a certain level and take a cut of all of these third-party games. Now, Atari kind of failed about keeping quality up on the 2600. There were two games in particular. There was a game called E.T. based on the movie that came out in 1983, and there was a clone of Pac-Man made for the 2600. Now, that was a popular arcade game, of course, Pac-Man, but it was a very low-quality port to the 2600. Those two games were such low quality that they led to a glut in availability of games. They actually had to go and take a lot of them and throw them into the desert and bury them to decrease supply because there was 
was such a problem with supply and demand, it led to a video game crash and it really permanently hurt the company Atari. So there's somewhere just like a burial ground of video games in a desert? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a documentary from a few years ago where people wanted to verify this myth, like do the games really exist in the desert? And they went and dug them up and they found them. So it's true. Doesn't sound very environmentally friendly. No, absolutely not. But this was the 80s. So (laughs) then the Nintendo Entertainment System comes out and it dominates video games in the U.S. from about 1985 until the early 90s. Nintendo saw what had gone wrong with Atari and they weren't going to make the same mistake. They were really tough about what third parties can manufacture for their console. And they really kept it locked down. They wanted to keep the quality up and they wanted to keep piracy down. In fact, they would do many different techniques to keep third party manufacturers on a leash. What are some of those techniques? One thing they would do is, of course, they would control how many games each third-party licensee could actually produce. So at first, they would actually limit it to just five games per year so that you weren't just getting a huge number of garbage games coming out in the stores that consumers who, this is before the internet, so it wasn't easy to get like instantaneous reviews on all these games, right? Consumers weren't getting a bad experience with the third-party games. Number two, they would control... Who could manufacture games very, very tightly? They didn't just let anybody become a licensee. And they would actually control how many cartridges each manufacturer would get. So because they were the only ones who could allow cartridges to be produced, they could say, well, hey, uh, Namco or Tengen, you know, these are some NES game makers, you can only have a million cartridges this year. So they can really control the distribution of the number of games from each manufacturer. And then another thing they would do is they'd actually put a chip on the cartridges called a lockout chip. And it was in the NES hardware too. It was kind of a lock and key mechanism that would not allow pirated games to run on their consoles so that companies who wanted to bypass their restrictions and manufacture their own cartridges couldn't. Now, remember, when I say cartridges, we're talking about physical devices and a cartridge would only fit in a particular console. So really, the manufacturer of these consoles, and that's not just Nintendo, that also goes for Sega or Atari, could really control who could make games for their consoles. So the hardware was controlling the software. Right, because you could only load your software onto these cartridges, and those cartridges had to be coming from the original manufacturer of the console. So the other types of games, right, the games that maybe are are played on PCs, those have a different distribution mechanism. They were always much more open. So we go back to the personal computer revolution in the late 1970s. And if you want to know more about that, by the way, we have a previous episode. I'll I'll put a link to in the show notes about the personal computer revolution. But from the early personal computer revolution in the first platforms like the Apple II or the Commodore 64, they were open platforms, meaning that anybody could write software for them. So if you had an Apple II, you could make software for the Apple II and then you could sell it to anybody else who had an Apple II. Now, you'd still have to get into stores back in those days generally to really sell a lot of copies. There was such a thing as shareware, which went on in the 80s and the 90s, where people would distribute floppy disks from person to person, copying programs, and then sending in checks to get license keys in the mail. Now, that's beyond kind of the scope of our discussion today. But in general, the PC platforms were open, meaning anyone could make games for them, and anyone could then distribute those games. It wasn't like Apple or Microsoft or Commodore was really locking down or IBM locking down the platform and saying only this person can make software for this platform. So, and that has continued to this day. It's always been that the consoles have been locked down and the PC market, including Macs and Windows and uh, Linux PCs today, have always been open. We're not buying cartridges anymore, though, for the consoles. 
Right. And that's where it starts to get a little bit more interesting in that over the last decade to two decades, we've really seen the sale of video games go from physical stores to online platforms. And that includes both in the console market as well as in the PC market. Now, if we look at the console market, it's still a very locked down story in that you buy a console. Let's say you buy a Nintendo Switch or you buy a PlayStation from Sony and they have a built-in store and there only is one store. It's not like there's third-party stores on the PlayStation or third-party stores on the Nintendo Switch. So Sony and Nintendo are still very tightly controlling what games are available through those stores. Now, they also will still sell physical games, and those physical games will still go through physical stores as well, but they are just like in the earlier eras, controlling what third-party licensees can make games physically or digitally for their platforms. One thing I find interesting about this shift is that the software that is getting made for these consoles can now be updated and changed, whereas when the first Mario came out, right? It had to be perfect the first time around. That's absolutely right. When video games were still running through cartridges and there was no public internet, no commercialized internet, when you got that game from the physical store, it had to be perfect. It had to have as few bugs as possible. It had to run correctly. There's been a bit of a moral hazard in video game distribution over the last 20 years or so because when a game first comes out, it doesn't have to be perfect because a software update can come out a few months later and fix any of the problems. This also has put more pressure on developers in some ways to continually update their games with new content and with bug fixes for new operating systems over the years after it originally comes out. So there's a lot more maintenance that needs to happen on the part of developers. But at the same time, developers can also sometimes ship games with problems and then fix those problems later. So that's been a really interesting kind of side story to the, to the move from physical distribution to online distribution. So how do the app stores, like the Mac App Store, the Windows App Store, work in this ecosystem of games? So they're curated, but they're not as curated as the console stores. So, for example, let's take the Mac App Store. There's games on the Mac App Store. Apple does have some regulations. There's certain kinds of content Apple does not allow. They do check that the games don't have certain mission-critical bugs, that they don't have security vulnerabilities. They don't do extensive checking. It's not extreme curation like the Nintendo Store or the Sony Store is. So most games get through. And so you get a lot more of what's called shovelware, which is basically low-quality apps and games existing on the stores because they're not as highly curated. There's also, of course, Steam. Steam is the largest way that people buy PC games, Mac games, and Linux games today. And Steam is controlled by Valve. Valve has a higher level of curation, somewhere between the Mac App Store and Microsoft's Windows Store, and something like Nintendo Store and Sony Store. It's somewhere in between how restrictive they are in terms of what they allow on the platform. But it's still a lot more open, whether you're buying through Steam or you're buying through the Mac App Store or the Windows Store, it's still a lot more open than Nintendo Store or Sony Store. Of course, there's also still just wide open distribution on the web. So any game that you want, you can go and purchase. It doesn't have to have anybody's stamp of approval, not Microsoft's, not Apple's, and you can download and play it. And that means that the PC continues to be the open platform while the consoles continue to be the closed platform even to this day. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about GameStop. So, Rebecca, tell us a little bit about the history of GameStop. Well, GameStop was actually founded in 1984, and it was originally called Babbage's. Um, and an early investor was actually Ross Perot, who was had his own software company and was a big technology investor. 
yeah, he's a really, really important person in history. Not only did he create a large software company himself, but he also was one of the early investors in Steve Jobs Next, which eventually led to modern Apple. Of course, he was a presidential candidate in the 1990s who got the most third-party vote in a very, very long time. So he's a really important figure. It's cool he started helped to start GameStop. Yeah, that was one of the interesting facts I found. GameStop starts in 1984, but it wasn't the GameStop we know or imagine right now, and obviously it had a different name, Babbage's. Then it merges with a software company out of Minnesota. The Babbage's was actually founded in Texas. They come together, the software company from Minnesota and Babbage's become what we now know as GameStop. But another interesting step on their evolution was that in 1999, they were actually bought by Barnes & Noble. Now, well, tell people what Barnes & Noble is because a lot of people might not actually know. Barnes and Noble is a bookstore. It was a huge bookstore, a big chain. It still exists. It's still around. We have one here in Burlington. Uh, but it has certainly declined uh, quite a bit with the rise of Amazon. Absolutely. So where is GameStop at today and how have they been doing the last few years? Well, from 2004 to 2016, they were doing pretty well for themselves. They weren't under Barnes & Noble anymore. They were independent. They were expanding actually all over the world in Europe, um, New Zealand, Australia. But it had to come to an end. In 2016 is when things start declining for them. And that's, what I think, where we really see this rise of folks not needing to go to physical stores for their games anymore. Right. So you talked about the period from 2004 to 2016. And what people need to keep in mind is happening in that period is the rise of broadband internet. Now, video games for a console or for a PC today measure in the many gigabytes. Some games are as much as 100 gigabytes. And that means that if you have a slow internet connection, like in the 1990s, we started to see internet connections, but they generally be 56K modems. It would, if we still had those kind of internet connections today, it would take forever to download any modern game. We have pretty good broadband in most of the United States today. Now we can have a whole episode about that. But if you have a connection that's reasonable, if you have a 50 megabit connection or a 100 megabit connection, you can download a game that's many gigabytes in a few hours. That means that it actually is pretty convenient to download a modern game. Whereas back in 2004, it was not. It, we were just at a point where games were getting big enough that, but internet connections hadn't caught up yet, that it wasn't that convenient to download most of them. But today, it really is. So to me, GameStop feels a bit like Blockbuster. I agree with you. So we've talked about how we've seen this move from physical distribution to digital distribution over the last decade or so. There's no way that that's a positive trend for GameStop. GameStop relies on physical distribution, and less and less video games are being physically distributed. So at a fundamental level, this doesn't seem like a very good stock. But in the last week or so or longer, it has done very well in the stock market. Right. And we can get into a little bit of the details around that. There was one of the founders of Chewy.com, which is an online marketplace for pet products. He actually invested in GameStop last year. And he said, you know what? We have to get into digital distribution at GameStop. And he actually got a seat on the board to try to take them in that direction. And that was seen as a positive. Yet they continue to lose money. They've been losing money for the last couple of years, not turning a profit. And what happened is a lot of short sellers, which are usually big hedge funds, 
they said, and a short seller is somebody who believes the stock is going to go down. We can get into the technicalities of how that works. Basically, they borrow shares against what a future price might be of the stock. But anyway, they, they think the stock is going to go down. And you know what? I have to agree with them. They're probably right. They pr it probably was going to go down because there's this fundamental trend of video game distribution moving from physical to digital. And GameStop is not at the forefront of digital distribution. Steam is at the forefront of uh, digital distribution from Valve. So I don't think on any fundamentals, this is a long-term positive trend for GameStop. I think in the long term, GameStop might, like you said, look like Blockbuster because that's just not where people are getting their video games. Just like the Blockbuster is not where people are getting their movies anymore. What's the big deal about these short sellers or what's actually been happening? Well, the short sellers got so aggressive, they actually had more shares borrowed against GameStop than actually are like in the market around GameStop. They had like 100% of shares of GameStop shorted or something like that. And so people noticed this and it kind of led into a viral movement kind of founded on Reddit to try to raise the price of GameStop to the point where the short sellers would really be hurting. Because if you borrow a share of the stock expecting the price to go down, but then the price actually goes up, you now owe the difference between what the original cost of that borrowed share was and the current price of the stock. And I'm putting this in the simplest terms possible, of course. There's more technicalities in that. But the point is they're really hurting those hedge funds that were shorting GameStop. Now, at the same time, they're also just, of course, profiting themselves as the stock goes up and up and up. But in my opinion, and I'm not like an expert investor, but I have an undergrad degree in economics, so I know a little bit, but not too much. But in my opinion, nothing fundamental about the company, as we talked about the history and the movement from physical to digital distribution, justifies the current stock price. And the only thing that justifies it is either that people are trying to profit off of this viral movement on the stock, or they're angry at the hedge funds and they want to hurt the short sellers. Now, you could, if people are just trying to raise the price to profit off of it and they're doing that in a coordinated way, that's what's known as a pump and dump. And that's actually illegal according to security laws in the United States. But it's going to be very hard to prove that all of these fairly anonymous online people were coordinating in some way to do a pump and dump. So I, I think, you know, it's hard to really charge anybody with any kind of crime here. But then what's happened is then Robinhood, which is one of the biggest trading platforms, and actually one of the things Robinhood does is they take, when you execute an order on Robinhood, they actually go to sometimes some hedge funds and they say, hey, do you want to get the penny difference between what the person was trying to buy the stock at and a couple seconds later what the stock's actual price is? And some of the hedge funds are their clients, therefore, and that's how Robinhood makes some money. Now, there were allegations that Robinhood shut down trading on GameStop to satisfy some of their hedge fund clients. They deny that, and it's unclear you know, whether they really just couldn't cover all of the volatility on GameStop with the current funds that they had available or whether they were really bowing to the hedge funds. Uh, I don't want to make a claim one way or another. I don't want to you know, say what I think about that because I really don't know for sure. But the point is that this has now become a story that looks at retail small investors versus hedge funds battling for the value of this company without really considering what is the real like long-term prospects for GameStop. What I also find kind of interesting about this is that GameStop, in some ways, is going to get 
killed by the internet, I think, right? Like, because that's what's allowing folks to be able to download their game so much faster. And here is this viral movement started on an, an, an online chat room, I guess would be a way to describe subreddit. it. Subreddit. Um, and it blew it up. And now we're going to see what happens. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to necessarily mean that GameStop gets to stick around that forever. I don't think this ends well. And I don't think it ends well, actually, for the retail investors. You know, when retail investors go against hedge funds, the hedge funds, they have a lot of shady connections and they have some legitimate connections (laughs) and they usually, and they have a lot of money and they usually win. But the reason I really don't think it's going to end well is that there are no fundamentals that justify this price for the stock. At the time that we're recording this, it actually is at over $300 a share, which gives it a market cap in the tens of billions of dollars. And when you look at the actual fundamentals, what kind of profit did GameStop turn last year, right? What is their ability to grow over the next few years? When you think about what we've been talking about with games moving from physical distribution to digital distribution, there are no fundamentals. There's nothing there that justifies this kind of price and this market valuation. So at some point, like all viral movements, the viral movement will end and people will stop just arbitrarily buying the stock. And then the stock will again be evaluated based on its fundamentals, and those fundamentals do not justify a price anywhere close to this. So I think if I was somebody listening to this right now, and you trust me even a little bit about what I'm saying, go research it for yourself. Go, Go look up everything I'm saying about digital distribution versus physical distribution. Go look at how much profit or lack of profit they turned last year, and really think carefully about whether you want to be holding those shares right now. And I am not an investor in GameStop, so I can say whatever I want about it, (laughs) (laughs) legally. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for listening to us this week. We really appreciate it. Rebecca, how can people get in touch with us on Twitter? We're at Kopec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.